On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson, we're talking about polling numbers and what it shows for the federal election that everybody expects is going to land in the fall. Who's happy? Who's not happy? You could probably guess, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk, speaking of not happy, we're going to talk about how much you as an Ontarian owe in provincial and federal debt. Let me give you a hint. It's huge. It is staggeringly huge, the amount you owe as an Ontarian. How do we deal with it? We'll talk about that. And we will be talking podcasts because the podcast industry has just, well, we're hearing numbers that are gigantic. The number that podcasting is now worth, this little thing you used to do in your basement, now it is worth billions. Eric Alper joins us to talk about the podcasting world. Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Welcome all aboard with the Scott Thompson Show. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson on this Friday. That is it me or does this not feel at all like a Friday? With the day off yesterday, all day, it's felt like Monday. We're coming back on Monday. It's Friday where the weekend is just around the corner, but it it is the weirdest feeling Friday ever. All day, as I say, it feels like we're just launching into a new week and gearing up for all kinds of stuff to do. But nope, nope, we finished today and more days off for most of us anyway. Glad you can be here for the show. Uh, really delighted that you are along with us. Yes, the the small gathering of uh, folks outside the basement studio applauding that news. I don't know if, if a small group of people start gathering outside your house, probably more concerned than, than appreciative. Nonetheless, uh, let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. Cause we are jammed for a Friday. I mean, just Jordan who schedules the show, just piling it on today with goodness, with radio goodness. First up this hour though, it appears when you look at polling numbers yesterday, or pardon me, on Wednesday, we talked about the polling numbers for what was look, what it was looking like in Ontario with an election about a year away. Well, by all accounts, a federal election is going to be a lot sooner than a year away. We keep hearing that there's going to be a fall election. The prime minister even shaved his beard. That's got to be a sign of something coming up for, in some way. But what happens if we have an election, let's say this fall, federally? How are things looking? Well, the short form of the answer is, as I read it, if you're a liberal supporter, you're happy. If you're any other supporter, you're not so happy. I want to bring in Andrew McDougall, professor of political science with the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. No problem. So... The numbers do seem to suggest that things are pretty rosy right now for the Liberal Party. Why are we seeing that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. They do seem to be having a little bit of an updraft here. Uh, and it's probably connected to the success that the vaccine rollout has, has started to enjoy. More and more Canadians have now got their first and second shots. Canada has gone from being what was a laggard around the world on, uh, on vaccines to being a world leader. Uh, you know, a lot of that did come down to the federal government's procurement strategy, and this has been what everyone's been focusing on. And he's had some success, of course, with stabilizing the economy. So I think a lot of Canadians are now beginning to see some of that paying off, and he's enjoying a little bit of a bump in the polls, and it looks like he may very well uh, want to take advantage of that. 
All right. I want to get to, I want to go through the, th- mostly the three main parties. We're going to leave the Bloc Québécois out of this discussion because honestly, around here, nobody really cares. Um, I don't think. But let's start with what I think is the really the main story here. You can disagree with me. What has Aaron O'Toole done wrong? Because it seemed like there was a real opportunity here for the opposition to make headway. And there has been none. In fact, he's fallen back. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I'm not actually sure that there was a whole lot uh, that he necessarily could do. Being an opposition leader is not an easy job. You are not really in a position to set the political agenda. You don't really have any power. You know, you're really just always relegated to suggesting that you can do a better job. And a lot of times people aren't paying a whole lot of attention to that. So, you know, the fact that he's struggling isn't necessarily unexpected, but it is still a reality that it doesn't look like his polls numbers are right now high enough to overtake the liberals. And that can create a lot of problems for him, you know, with the party if they start to decide that you know, he's not the person to, to take them over the top. Has has he had enough time for people to know who he is or or really is is an election campaign where a lot of people are going to get their impression of him other than just a name? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of a combination there. There's no doubt that once the election starts, people are going to tune in and start spending, uh, you know, a little bit more time getting to know who these, uh, you know, who the leaders are. So he's still, you know, got a lot of opportunity here, and he's not, um, you know, certainly out of the running either. But, I mean, you see the same thing uh, sort of in Ontario with the Liberal leader, where, you know, there's very little visibility there either. But given the context of in which we're in, um, it's really been, you know, given the sort of the national emergency, people have been focused on people in power. And so the name recognition is much higher for Doug Ford and for Justin Trudeau and less on the opposition. And that's a real problem for them. Um, they're going to have to to overcome that. They're going to do their best over the summer to introduce themselves, as they've been doing all along and, and during the campaign, of course, to try to raise their, their stature. But that's tough. It's difficult being in the opposition. Is an, is an emergency, and we'll call COVID an emergency, I think that's a fair description, is an emergency something that generally benefits the party in power or the opposition? And, and I mean, I'm trying to think of recent ones. 9-11 comes to mind. George Bush got a huge bump from when 9-11 happened politically. Um, at the same time, as you pointed out, there have been questions about the handling of COVID. So is this expected that an emergency helps the governing party or, or a surprise? Yeah, I don't think you're all that wrong in, in terms of the, the analysis there. Usually whenever some major event like that happens, it gives a platform to the leader to, you know, the person in power to really sort of flaunt their leadership skills. Everyone's focused on what they're doing, and you see sort of a natural bump that comes with it. But there's no guarantee that that's going to continue. Uh, and especially the longer something goes on, if there's a sense that the the person is not handling it correctly, uh, then you'll see a, a drop in their numbers. And, and we, I think we've seen a little bit of that, for example, with Doug Ford in Ontario as the uh, – as the pandemic went on, there was a very strong level of support for a while. That began to fall as people started to question his judgment there. We certainly saw it with... Um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I didn't say anything. Go ahead. I don't know what okay. you heard. Go ahead. Uh, and uh, and certainly with uh, Trudeau, we saw the um, uh, when the pandemic, when the, the rollout of the vaccine was not going particularly well, we saw his numbers taking a hit. But now that things are back on track, they've, they've started to come back. So, yeah, usually an emergency context will help uh, help the leaders sort of present themselves in a favorable light. But there's no guarantee that that's going to last if they don't prove to be effective to that task. Do you think those daily discussions we'll call them the uh, the the outdoor fireside chats that uh, that were going on in the early days of covid with i mean Doug Ford did it the prime minister did do you think those were helpful if for nothing else to just dominate the narrative and remain the face of par- of power 
You're talking about the daily press conferences that both of them offered, uh, right? As the uh, as a thing, yeah. I mean, I I think that that was certainly um, you know part of the re- part of the initial boost that they had. I mean, it had to be very very visible when the pandemic was first breaking out to to show that they were aware of the situation, that they knew what people were going through, that they had a plan to help people out, and that they were on top of this. And so, you know, once people you know they want to see some assurance from political leaders that that they're being listened to. And that certainly helped them a little bit in the beginning. But, of course, again, the longer it goes on and the more people are willing to sort of question whether or not they're the right person for the job, that's not always the, um, you know, that's not always a winning strategy. And you saw a little bit later on how there was some pulling back and it wasn't quite as often as they would get out in front of the uh, of the public as they were trying to, to manage the situation. But, yeah, I mean, they, there was no way uh, when, when the pandemic broke out that they weren't going to be extremely visible. They just had to be the political leaders. So visibility is a great thing if things are, if you're doing a good job and things are going well and you're avoiding scandal and all the rest. Um, And yet the amazing part about these poll results that seem to be showing Justin Trudeau and the Liberals looking pretty comfy right now is that I think most people would look at Justin Trudeau's track record and say most other leaders, if you had the SNC-Lavalin and the WE scandal and you know, the, the, the other things that have come along, handling of COVID, the border still being closed, a bunch of the scandals. No other leader would weather those very well. Why is he able to? Well, I, I mean, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting argument. I mean, it's true that he's certainly been through, uh, you know, some, some political turbulence while he's, he's been in office. Uh, I think the reality, though, is, is that most people have been focused pretty, um, pretty much solely on the, on the pandemic and the, ep- and the economic fallout that, that comes from that. And as long as political leaders have been seen to be able to perform well on that particular file, they're really, I think, less interested in some of the other stuff that might otherwise be far more, um, far more damaging. So, I don't think you're wrong with the um, uh, with the with the We Charity scandal. I think that could have been a huge or much bigger, um, you know, event if the pandemic wasn't going on. But uh, otherwise, you know, Canadians were much more focused on whether or not the federal government was achieving its its goals with uh, with COVID, and for the most part, it was. And I think, uh, you know, he benefited a little bit from the willingness of the public to give him a pass, as long as what was really important to them was being managed well. You know, you raise a really interesting question, and I don't quite know how to word this because I, I don't want to make it sound flippant or whatever else, but has the COVID situation, while nobody wanted it and nobody was happy about anything that happened and nobody certainly is happy about deaths or wants to be appearing to be taking advantage, was the COVID situation somehow then beneficial to the governing parties? I don't think, I I don't think anyone would go, would go that far necessarily. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a disaster for everybody, and they they sort of had to had to manage it. Uh, I mean, whenever uh, a crisis breaks out, uh, you know, political leaders will do their best to show that they're on top of things. And you know, as long as and quite often, as you pointed out, they'll have a boost in popularity if they seem to be doing well. But that can be very very tricky. You know, I mean, Trudeau and 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 Ford may have had a bit of a, a bit of a lift, and Trudeau might be having a bit of a lift now. But he's not invulnerable by any stretch of the imagination. And those numbers are not good enough to guarantee that he's going to win this election. If things don't start to, uh, if things start to fall apart, it, you could very easily see a situation where the Liberals will be much more vulnerable than they are today. And we're still a ways away from an election, so a lot can happen between mm. now and then. Okay, so you are now. I'm, I'm putting you. I am designating you as the the head of the Liberal election campaign. You are now in charge of decision making, understanding where it looks like things are. And let's say we do have a fall election. 
is the strategy to keep the prime minister out front and talking or is the strategy to hide him away as much as possible so nothing possibly could go wrong and ruin the momentum that's there? No, that's not the way that Canadian politics or really any politics works for any party. I mean, the focus is always going to be on the leader no matter what. Um, so, you know, whatever party you're in, you're going to want to have your, your leader out there front and center delivering the message. And people are going to be watching to see whether or not that message is going to be delivered effectively. This is exactly sort of the issue that uh, someone like Aaron O'Toole is going through right now is that he is really the only person that can deliver a message for the conservatives. And people are watching very carefully to see whether or not he can do it. There really isn't anybody else out there, um, you know, who can take that job. Uh, and so, you know, really all comes down to uh, to the leader in terms of delivering delivering what the party is really all about. He's going to have his team. He's going to you know, show the people that he's going to be uh, relying on. Um, but without the leader, you're, you're, you're pretty much dead in the water. One of the things that the polling numbers seem to suggest is that the Liberals are pretty strong in Ontario and Quebec, out in BC, in Atlantic Canada. But the West, the, the Alberta, Saskatchewan, most of Manitoba range remains very similar to what it was during the last election where the Liberals essentially were blanked. That doesn't look like it's changing, at least, you know, again, we're still early and stuff can still happen, but that it tends to be looking like it's leaning that way again. Is that a problem? Is that a problem for them that you still can't seem to bring that part of the country into the fold? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always been seen as being an issue for the Liberals that they've always struggled in the West. But at the same time, once again, they've always struggled in the West. So it's not an unexpected um, issue that they're facing. Uh, the Liberals have you know, always had challenges reaching out to, to that community and have done a lot to try to, to improve their numbers in that uh, part of the country. But I think they're probably going to be very realistic and they're not going to know that if they're going to get a majority government, it's just not going to go through a place like uh, Calgary or, or, or Saskatchewan. They're going to have to get seats in other parts of the country where they traditionally do better. I'm sure they would love to improve their standing there. But again, this is a very long seated issue for that party. All right. Well, the NDP and the Green, uh, NDP more prominently, obviously, they're a much bigger party still at this point. Are, do they look like they are going to be much or any of a factor in this election coming up, assuming the election is called? Well, the NDP is always a factor in Canadian politics. I mean, there's no there's no doubt about that. People will be listening very carefully to the message that they want to say. Um, but I mean, whether or not they can have a breakout moment, uh, you know, I mean, I think we're still a little bit too far away on, on that one. Uh, they're, they're going to be facing a lot of the same issues that Aaron O'Toole is going to be facing. You know, they're not in power. They don't have, uh, you know, the levers of, of, of control where they can, you know, show that they've taken a leadership position here. It's going to be some issues with, with visibility. They've got a sort of a wider, more diffuse level of support. They might do very well, but, you know, there's no guarantee of that. Right now, they're sort of polling at the areas that you'd sort of expect them to. I don't think they're necessarily doing badly, um, but they're not particularly posed for a huge breakout. They've got a lot of work to do if they want to... Uh, to improve their numbers in, in the next election. I'm thinking back to the last election and there was a lot of optimism about Jagmeet Singh and the NDP going in. And then he had a pretty disastrous campaign that had a little bit of a, a pullback at the end to the point where on election night, I remember there was this like party like atmosphere and you wait, you just lost a whole bunch of seats. Why so excited? It's because of where the campaign, I guess, had gone. But if he can, if he can figure it out, if he can do a, have a great campaign and be a guy who really factors into this, what impact does that have on the liberals? Because now you're potentially splitting the left. 
Yeah, I mean, the Liberals are always going to pay attention as uh, sort of a central-ish party, uh, paying attention to what both the Conservatives and the NDP do. If the NDP start enjoying a real surge, they're going to be looking to find out what it is that's driving that, because it's going to mean that there's some appetite for more left-wing politics. And you would expect them to start moving a little bit in that direction to try to pick up some of that support. Um, but, you know, for right now, I think most of the, again, the, the election is going to be focused really on the uh, the economy and, and the pandemic. And whether or not there's going to be a huge amount of difference in terms of the parties on that particular issue, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether or not there can be, um, you know, a significant range of opinion. A lot of them share you have the same platform on how to how to manage this thing. So it's going to be difficult for the NDP and the Conservatives to distinguish themselves. So we just have a couple of minutes here. Let's very quickly on the three main parties anyway. Um you are the Tories campaign manager. What is the thing? Where is the fertile ground for you right now coming out of COVID, potentially heading into election? Where's the area where Aaron O'Toole can really make some hay? Yeah, I mean, that's something that I'm, and I am not the conservative uh, strategist. No, absolutely. No, no, we're, we're going to give you that chance for all <laughs> yeah, of them. But they, they're obviously going to be looking at that right now. I mean, they're the, the, the job of any government in waiting is to suggest that they can do a better job than the government that's in power now. So they're going to be going through the pandemic response and what the government had done, and they're going to try to show that you know if they had been in power or if they get elected, uh, they would do a better job than the liberals. They would be more competent, and they would be able to um, uh, you know to to deliver better than than the liberals do. And they're also going to be trying to you know promote their own policies that distinguish themselves in more ordinary times from the liberals to suggest that this is a better path. But that is, of course, going to be very, very tricky to do. And they're going to have to, to really struggle to make sure that they connect with Canadians during the campaign, which is really when they're going to start tuning in to see whether or not Aaron O'Toole really does have a different plan and a better plan uh, than the one that the Liberals are proposing. All right. Same thing now. You're now the NDP's campaign manager. What is, where do you distinguish yourself on the progressive and liberal side from the Liberals? Where do you find your, your ground to make hay? Yeah, so the, the NDP are always to the left of, of the Liberals, and they're going to be reaching out to their progressive base. Uh, oftentimes they have a, a more diffuse um, uh, base than the, the Liberals or the Conservatives do, so it's going to be a little bit different in terms of their approach. But they're going to suggest that a more progressive stance towards Canadian politics is what people really want. And they're going to really play up those policies. And they're going to do what they can to suggest that they can do better uh, in terms of managing sort of the post-pandemic world. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with on that file. I haven't seen anything recently on what specifically they've done, but this summer that is the, uh, that's the kind of thing that both parties are going to be working on. All right. And finally, you are the Liberals campaign manager. And I asked you before about what do you do to either keep the prime minister front and center or not, but it, it, are you preaching, if you're the Liberals now, are you preaching status quo? Look how great everything is. Or are you saying there's an awful lot we still need to do and here's what we're going to do? Oh, you're definitely going to say there's a lot still to be done, but they're going to really focus on the success of the vaccine rollout and the success of some of the economic um, initiatives that they launched. Uh, you know, over the course of this minority government, it really has been defined by the pandemic. That's what everyone's been focusing on. That's what everyone's wanted to see, you know, success and competence on. And the liberals have gotten a lot of credit from the public on both of those uh, on both of those policy items. So they're going to come back to that again and again and say, look, you know, this was a real crisis. We were in charge. We met that crisis and we're the right people to to take it, you know, over the line. Uh, and so, you know, it's in your interest to to keep the liberals in power. That is Andrew McDougall, professor of political science with the University of Toronto. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thanks again. 
it is uh, it is something that we probably will be talking about a lot more in the next little while because every evidence, every hint, every thing seems to suggest that we'll probably have a fall election, assuming no more COVID. Because again, we we were going to have a summer election, and then they realized that would be a really bad idea and tick people off. So, assuming we're still heading back to normal, fall election probably is that enough time for someone to carve into the liberals lead? We will see. We will see. But if it was today, it looks like it would be majority prime minister, Justin Trudeau. Again, that's the way the polls are showing. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, you've heard, I'm sure over the last number of months that, uh, our governments have spent a few dollars. <laughs> yeah. I laugh because when I say a few dollars, it, it's hilarious. Uh, n- not the total, just the understatement. They've spent more than a few dollars, as you, as I say, probably are aware. You've probably heard something about how much has been spent mm, to help with COVID. And then mm, is it still to help with COVID? I'm not sure. They're still spending. It's still under the guise of helping with COVID. I'm not sure all of it is, but nonetheless, we're talking about government spending. And at this point, you may want to take a seat if you have a weak heart or are prone to fainting. Because when I tell you how much money you as an Ontarian owe in provincial and federal taxes combined, tax, pardon me, debt, not taxes, federal and provincial debt combined, how much every single person who lives in Ontario and calls this land home, Ontario, how much you owe I think you're going to be a little stunned, a little shocked, and maybe a little weak in the knees when you consider what we're dealing with now. You ready for this? Every single Ontarian, according to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation that just came out with their figures, every single Ontarian owes $61,600 in public debt. Family of four, $246,400, almost a quarter of a million dollars every family of four owes. Now, not directly, of course, this is the government, but the government is your representative. That The government isn't going to pay back that money. You are. You're the taxpayer. If we ever going to pay it back. Think about that for a second. A quarter million dollars per family is the debt that we have racked up in this country and this province. Franco Terrazano is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation that has come out with these numbers. He joins us now. Franco, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me on today. Uh, When I saw this thing at first, I I mean, I, I guessed that we owed a lot of money and I know that we owe a lot of money, but when you break it down by person and then you combine what's going on in the province as well, because most of what we've been hearing about is federal, my goodness, that is a lot of money. Well, it's absolutely mind-boggling, isn't it? And, um, I mean, that's the reason that we put out this report is because often when we hear about government debt, you know, we hear the Ontario government is hundreds of billions of dollars in debt. We hear that the federal government is more than $1 trillion in debt, that the recent budget is nearly doubling the pre-pandemic federal government debt. We hear that, but it's tough to really understand what that means for you, right? So we decided to break the numbers down, what it means for each Ontario resident. Um, and as you said, 
more than $61,000 is the total government debt tab that each Ontario resident owes. And, and to your point, I mean, this money isn't going to fall down from the sky. It can't be plucked from the trees. I mean, it's going to come from taxpayers' pockets one way or another. And we're putting out this report now because we really want to show this is why it's so important for politicians to look for ways to save some money. Because at the end of the day, if our politicians don't figure out a way to reduce their budgets, it's going to be everyday taxpayers that are going to get clobbered. Yeah, but we're, we're past that point, Franco, because even if you, even if they reduce their budgets, uh, we still are, let's say that a government, let's say the federal and provincial government both get together or separately decide we've got to start whittling away at this debt because it's just too monumental. Even if they say we're going to say over a 10 year stretch, our goal is to get rid of 25% of this debt. That means every taxpayer is going to be somehow tapped to pay an average of like for a family of four, $60,000 in that time frame to whittle away. How is that even possible now? It seems like it's impossible to do anything with this now. Well, this is just an absolute sea of red ink. But what's so important now is that our politicians make some tough choices today and tomorrow before they're forced to make even tougher choices down the road. And I think we need to remember that Canada has gone through a situation similar to this back in the 90s, right? Remember the the Trude, or the Liberal government in the 90s with Finance Minister Paul Martin, you had John mm-hmm. Gretchen, they had to deal with something similar to this. But the provinces have also dealt with these types of debt issues before. You had, especially in the prairies, you had Saskatchewan and Alberta, they had massive amounts of deficits and massive amounts of debts. But the problem is, is that they let, they let it get really, really, really bad. And Saskatchewan's got so bad that they had to shut down 50 hospitals across the province. So to your point, I mean, it's going to take such a long time to pay this thing down, but we can't make it worse. And if we do make it worse, the tough choices ahead are going to be far worser than, than what we would have to do today if we finally start tightening our belts. Here's something that I don't think that a lot of people realize. I had to see the numbers, so I'm not pretending that I'm uh, somehow brighter than the people listening. I'm not. Uh, but the provincial def- the provincial interest, the amount we pay every year in this province just to service the debt, just the interest payments, money that we are flushing down the toilet is $13.1 billion dollars. I mean, it's it's unbel- it's it's staggering to think what could what positive things could be done with that amount of money in this province. And that's just provincial interest charges, right? That's just the of interest course. charges for the provincial government, the Ford government. That doesn't even consider the federal government. And when you break that down, federal and provincial government interest charges, it's fourteen hundred smackers per Ontario resident. And to your point, there is no value for tax dollars there. That. Those billions of dollars in annual interest payments, that's not going to health care. That's not hiring more nurses or, or, or more teachers. That's not going back into our pockets through lower taxes. It's going to service the government debt. It's going to the bond fund managers. And let's remember, like $13 billion in provincial interest charges, that seems like a huge number. But what happens if interest rates spike up? That would blow a huge hole in government budgets, and that would make this whole debt situation that we've been talking about even worse, as hard as that would be to believe, right? So this is why it's so important to make some tough choices right now. 
Yeah. And, and again, I, I, I like that you've put this into a, a number like per person so we can understand it, but let's use another example that people might be able to, it puts, brings it down to a, a level we can all grasp here in Hamilton. We have had endless discussions about the LRT, which now is supposed to be about a $3.4 billion LRT, just the money that Ontario is paying for debt to service the debt could build four of our LRTs every year across the province. And that's just flushed money. That's just gone. That's wasted money. It's just, it's a staggering sum that we are now saddled with. Yeah, and I'm so glad you put it in terms like that, because one thing that politicians need to do, I mean, families do this all the time, right? When when they look at their budgets, they we have to prioritize. What can we afford to spend? What can we not afford to spend? And I know, like, I'm here in Calgary right now, and we've been going through such a tough time, like everyone through COVID, but also in the last five years. And myself, so many of my friends, we've, we've all had to say, well, maybe we just can't afford the fancy, the fancy nice to haves. And, and those are the kind of decisions that we need to see our politicians making, but which we haven't seen them making at all. Let's look at that recent federal budget that came out a few months ago. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages long, but there is no tough choices that, that Finance Minister Freeland is making. All she tried to do with that budget is cram into it as many spending promises as possible. Well, the problem with that is we already have a massive debt problem. We already have these massive interest payments that are just chewing away at what we can get as taxpayers. And if the government doesn't make tough choices, at the end of the day, years from now, they're going to be forced to. Mathematically speaking, interest charges are going to go through the roof, and there's no way that taxpayers, families, businesses can afford this growing and growing tab. Sure, Franco. And that's, of course, that's true. But politicians don't get elected generally on slashing stuff. They don't get elected on austerity. They get elected because people like that they're going to get, quote, quote, free stuff that's never free, but that's positioned as being free. And, and so, so what, what political party, especially with, especially here in Ontario and federally with both heading towards an election, who's going to come out and say, Hey, just so you know, it's going to be great. Vote for us. We're going to slash everything. Never well, going to happen. Is- this is one of the reasons why we put out the debt report, right? Because we need to, sh- we, we are trying to do the groundwork right now to show all Canadians, Ontario, but also just from sea to sea, we're trying to show Canadians that let's remember this isn't a free lunch. All of this has to get paid. And, you know, what's so unfair about this is that it's not just taxpayers today that are going to be paying this tab. You know, there's so many political interest groups that are benefiting from all of this truckload of taxpayers' dollars going this way and that way. But guess who's not benefiting for a ton, from a ton of this spending? Future generations, right? Our kids, no. our grandkids. And they're the ones who are going to be paying a ton of this money. Yeah, but that doesn't seem real right now. It's a, you know, it, it, there's no sense of reality for that. We can always put it off because we always have before. I agree with you. But there's no, you don't feel like that's the case. If, if, if future generations really felt like the younger generations now really felt like this was going to come down on them like a sledgehammer, they wouldn't be lining up to support all this, but they seem to be. Well, I mean, you do make a, you do make a, a clear point. And one of the issues with all of this and how we got into this position is that, well, guess what? It's easier to spend other people's money than it is to spend your own money. And of course, politicians, they're not spending their own money when they're racking up these massive amounts of debts no. that we're talking about. They're spending our money, right? Us taxpayers' money. And that's why it's important, not only for, for groups like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, like us, to, to, to put this information out, but that's also why we're pushing for types of legislation that 
limits how much politicians can actually spend within a given year. Um, we have seen some of this legislation done in Canada to some benefits. I mean, that's actually one of the ways that the Alberta government got out of its huge debt problem back in the 90s is that it had balanced budget legislation where politicians could only really spend um, a certain amount in a given year. So I think it is time to get some of that type of limitations and legislation back in Canada. Well, we have that with municipal governments. Municipal governments are not permitted, I don't know about Alberta, but here in Ontario, are not permitted by law to run a deficit, an operating deficit. You could you can borrow for capital projects, but you cannot by law run an operating deficit as a municipality. And I look at that and I go, wouldn't that be an interesting idea if we did that provincially or federally, where, you know what, okay, you can set whatever spending goals you want. But you can't then saddle this on to future generations. If you want to increase spending by $100 billion, guess what? You have to go to the electorate today and say, we're doing this, but your taxes are also going up by 15%. And then see if people are willing to pay for those things now as opposed to dumping it on people later. But they would never, they would never put themselves under the constraints that municipalities here are under. Yeah, I mean, it's really up to us. Right. It's, it's really up to the people. I mean, we can't just we can't just think that these politicians are going to be with this huge access to other people's money, our money. We can't just think that they're just going to watch over themselves. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, there is no quick fix when it comes to how do we get out of this. There is no quick fix. Uh, it, it's going to take all of us. It really is going to take a concerted effort, not just from the politicians, but really from the people to force these politicians to rein in the spending. And again, that is one of the reasons why we put out this debt report. We're trying to build the groundwork, raise awareness to show Canadians there is no such thing as a free lunch when it comes to government spending. Um, if you actually look at the government debt tab, over $61,000 is what, the, what Ontario residents each owe in government debt. But, but that's why it's so important really to do the work right now to push Canadians to then push politicians. Here is why, as much as I agree with you, here is why I'm so pessimistic about this, and I hate to be that way, but here's why. Uh, and it goes back, I always go back to this one particular incident when Kawhi Leonard was still with the Raptors and if the season had ended and they were trying the Raptors and everyone was trying to hope that Kawhi Leonard would come back and re-sign with the Raptors. And I can't remember who it was, but a politician, I think a federal politician put out a tweet saying, Hey, Kawhi, if you stay here, look in, in Canada, we have free healthcare. Oh. And I thought, wait, you are a politician and you don't understand that it's not free, that everyone is paying thousands of dollars a year in taxes to go to healthcare. You think it's free? And as long as politicians seem to think that things are free or that, as you say, it's other people's money, there is, Franco, there is no chance, there is no hope that they're going to rein in their, tighten their belts or rein in their spending. There is no way they're going to as long as they hold those views. Yeah, that's oh, that's so that's so disturbing, right? Because it, I mean, it's it's not free. Say what you will, and you can arm wrestle over what's the best way to provide health care. But the truth of the matter is, there's a simple reason that it's not free. It's not free yeah, at it's all. It's provided. It's included, but not free. Not free at all. I mean, we are definitely paying 
for our, our health care system. That is true. But, you know, all of this really kind of shines light on what I've noticed during COVID-19 is that there has been a bit of two different classes within Canada here, right? You've had this government political class that has been protected from the downturn, and you've had the private sector, which has carried the whole burden of the downturn, or at least a huge part of it, where you've had so many private sector workers take pay cuts, lose their jobs, unfortunately. You've seen so many small businesses. They've done everything right their whole lives, put money away, and many of them have seen their businesses vanish before their eyes. And you know what? During this whole time during COVID-19, our members of parliament, our politicians in Ottawa, they have received not one, but two pay raises. Because they're essential. I mean, how, how could we possibly get by without giving them more money while everyone else, and they say we're all in this together, and we know that's not the case. But here's the other thing. I believe that there are really good people that go into politics, that go in with a pure motive, that think, I can change this, I can be different, I can, I can be really careful with people's taxes, and yet it seems within time, so many of them end up falling into line with what we believe is the stereotypical political answer. Why is it? Why is the, why is the lure or whatever it is when they get in office, why does it change so many of them? Yeah, it reminds me of that uh, that phrase is that you know once you're in the swamp starts to feel a little bit like a hot tub, um, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know um, I wish I had all the answers for that. I, I wish I did. I mean, um, but the truth of the matter, which I've kind of talked about, is that it's so important. And I know families and businesses. I know everyone is so busy just running their lives, just running, just staying on top of their careers trying to spend as much family time as possible. And I know why, that's why it's so important always to follow politics, but it truly is going to have to depend on Canadians, everyday Canadians mm. who hold these politicians accountable because we, can't, we just can't trust them to, to, to always make the right decisions when they're spending other people's money. And that's, again, why I circle back to why it's so important not just to, to have politicians there, but to handcuff politicians in the sense with like legislation that we we're talking about, like the balanced budget legislation, we could even go further to limit how much spending increases can go every year. There, there are ways, um, there are ways to limit the extravagance in Ottawa and uh, at Queens Park, but it's going to be take a few things, and it's really going to take concerted effort from Canadians. Yeah, and, and you, you mentioned household debt, and look, I, I understand, and you do too, that it's not an exact comparative because the way governments can operate is slight, is different from how households operate. There's no question it's not the same thing. That said, any household that was drowning in as much debt and had as much in interest payments and everything else every year, any household with five active brain cells in the people in that household would say, we've got to do something to bring this under control. And yet, yeah, I mean, as I say, we just, we don't see any of that from the public sector. Everyone, everyone is at least finding some parts of their budget, right? Households and businesses where they can save money. But to, to your point, we, we haven't seen that in government. And there's just one thing that I, one point I really want to make clear during this interview. And, and we see this huge amount of debt. And, and I want to make sure that people know that this isn't just from COVID-19 and the pandemic, this has been going on for such a long time. I mean, remember when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, when he was first running to be Prime Minister, he told Canadians, he told us that he would run a few modest deficits and that the budget would eventually get balanced. Well, long before COVID-19, Trudeau missed that target by a country mile. The federal government has been overspending and overspending for years. 
And let's look beyond COVID-19. That recent budget that came down is going to be increasing permanent government spending by $100 billion by 2026. So we were over, well, I shouldn't say we, our politicians were overspending for years before COVID-19. And if we look at the federal government, it sure seems to me like they're using COVID-19 as a cover to permanently increase government spending for years to come with absolutely no plans on how they're going to pay for it. Yes, and, and, and I, I, I don't dispute for a second, and, and anyone listening who says, well, wait, you guys are cutting out COVID. For, no, no, there was clearly a need for spending with COVID. I, I don't think there's any, well, there may be a few, but I don't think there's too many people that will say that was, we should not have spent any money. Now, would we be in better position if we had done a better job beforehand and had less debt and less deficits so we were better positioned when we had to have the rainy day come along? I would say yes, absolutely. But once again, we got to run here in a second, Franco, but what happens if we have another disaster of some kind with the debt we have now, the deficit we have, if we have to go through another COVID-like spending spree? Oh, We're screwed. Well, that's, that's what's so concerning, right? And what also happens, as I mentioned earlier, if interest rates spike up, interest yep, charges yep. go through the roof, another big hole in the budget. And what happens if we run into a downturn not related to a pandemic? Remember, those things happen right? What happens then? And that's why it's so important to, for politicians to make some tough choices today before the choices down the road are much, much worse. Well said. I uh, really appreciate it. Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thank you so much for having me on today. Uh, yeah, to make a little note for yourself there right now, and it's going to go up, but right now you as an Ontarian individually owe $61,000. What if they come to your door and say, hey, time to pay it? No, we, you know, they're not going to do that. But I mean, it's 61000 and that's up for one of you. And again, I want to stress this because, uh, you know, every time we talk about this stuff, people call it, or write in or call in and say, well, you're saying that, you know, COVID, that the government shouldn't have spent. No, we're not saying that that's the case. We're, I'm not saying that the government should not have done CERB or done other things. These are moments when the government is the safety net. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the case. What, what happened was necessary, but we're vastly better positioned to be that safety net if we're not so far in debt and so far in deficit, if we're actually prepared for these kind of things. Uh, you just look at these numbers and you think this, this is a staggering amount per person and it's only going up and we are hearing that inflation and interest rates will go up and you just, you fear, you fear. And if you're one of the people who's in Gen Z or millennial or whatever else and you think, oh, it's fine. We're just spending other people's money. Guess whose money that is? It's ultimately probably going to be your money because we're going to be long gone. And the baby boomers are going to be long gone. And then guess what happens when your taxes go through the roof? I mean, it's responsibility is a tough thing, but somehow somewhere along the way, all parties have to show some responsibility and they're all having a hard time doing this. You're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. If you want to read a great book, if you like rush, if you like Canadian music and want to read a great book, I'm in the middle of it right now. It's by Martin Popoff, uh, Anthem, Rush in the 1970s, Rush in the 70s. And I actually, I think you can get it at Costco right now, so it's not that expensive either. A uh, fantastic book, by the way. Very, very interesting book on the history of, uh, of Rush. And here, here's a little tidbit for those, even if you don't love Rush, here's a little side note that I learned from the book. I should have known this before because I am a fan. Do you know who introduced 
Getty Lee to Alex Lifeson, the two guys, two of the three from Rush. Steve Shutt, the Hall of Fame winger for the Montreal Canadiens. He knew them and knew they liked that music and they knew they should jam together. And apparently it was Steve Shutt that got Rush. Yeah, Steve Shutt is, rel- is responsible for Rush existing as a band. So goes the story. That's a great little nugget. True or not? I don't know, but I'm sticking with it because it's a great little nugget. Bottom of this hour, we're going to be talking about, uh, about gyms, which are still not open and the folks running gyms are not happy about it. I'll tell you, we'll, we'll get to that. And also the fact that the Tiger Cats players are, well, they're coming back into town. They're arriving yesterday, today, they are here to begin their quarantine. And then in a few days, week or so training camp is going to start. We are that close to having some football again, that close. We hope it happens. We hope it happens. Nothing could possibly go wrong at this point, could it? Nothing could possibly go wrong. Fingers crossed, touching wood, all the rest of the stuff. Nothing could go wrong. I want to bring in, uh, first though, a guy. We love having this guy on the show. He is a music publicist and a music writer and a shameless idealist, always the best part of his title. His name is Eric Alper, who joins us now. Eric, how are you today? Hey, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Hey, love having you on. I got something very important I want to talk to you about. But first, just during the break, I thought I'm going to ask Eric this question. There was a meme that popped up on my Facebook page during the break. And I got to ask you this question. Top of your head. Question is, what is one movie you're confident you've seen at least 10 times? Uh, the Usual Suspects. Oh, that's a good one. That's because a good I'm one. So Kaiser Jose, yes. I didn't understand it the first nine times. No, I, I love, I can watch that movie anytime when it pops up on the on any channel, no matter if it's like an hour in, I will still watch it to the end of it. There are movies like that, aren't there? The ones that, the, I call them the TV movies, where it doesn't matter where it is in the movie, if you happen across it, anything else you were going to watch gets gassed and you're watching that. Yeah, Rocky movies used to be like that for or Star <laughs> Wars or sci-fi. What's yours? Uh, the one I've seen at least 10 times. Um, the two that immediately came to mind was Spinal Tap and Slapshot. Um, um, you know, but but the TV movies, um, uh, the Shawshank Redemption is one of yeah. those. Doesn't matter where it is in the movie, I'll stop and watch. Um, uh, stupid one, a Happy Gilmore. I don't know why that works, but that will be that I will stop and watch. And Field of Dreams, of course. Yeah, okay. He, he just wanted to play catch with his dad. That's all. You know, how do you not? How, right? how do you so change the channel? Just thinking about it. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a great question. Though. It's a great meme that uh, I got to see here quickly. How many? Uh, they've already got um, two hundred and seventy-seven thousand comments on this one. So clearly, that's one that resonates with people. That uh, that everyone has at least one or two movies they've seen that many times. Uh, Eric, you, however, are not a movie writer, although you're you'd probably be fantastic as a movie writer. But your expertise is in music and audio and sound and things along those lines. And I want to talk to you a bit about podcasts because we just mm. got some numbers last week or later. Sorry, this week. I keep forgetting it's a Friday. It feels like a Monday so much <laughs> with the day off yesterday. Earlier this week, we got numbers that say that within a year or two, this is going to be a two billion dollar a year industry. Podcasts. Are you surprised? that it's found a way to be monetized to that point? I'm always surprised at numbers like that because you can't really put into perspective what it all means unless you realize that 
you know, it could be, um, you know, dwarfed by how much Netflix makes in a month around the world. What's amazing about it is that, um, you know, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past, too. There are going to be things that will forever change because of the pandemic. Um, and one of them is how we consume art and news and media and podcasts were right there for the longest time when we couldn't work or go to an office or drive in the car um, for nowhere to go. A good majority of us were inside and maybe kind of a little bit tired of listening to the people in the house. So they were putting on podcasts mm. or they were going for walks or runs and the podcast was it. It was hearing another voice, which is different, I think, than streaming music where it just passes the time away or puts you into another moment. The podcasting by using the voice is a little, um, I, I think that it would not have risen to that number had the pandemic not be so long. Because I think there was something about the human connection and stories and news that made people listen to podcasts more than ever before. Yes. And they are also though, and I agree with that, but they are also the, the sort of equivalent of a game of solitaire. I mean, with radio, with regular <laughs> radio, you may be alone listening, but you know, there are thousands of other people at the exact same moment listening to the same thing. A podcast is a truly you and you alone by yourself, generally kind of thing. Yeah, and you're getting your own experiences by that, and it's right. not it's not interrupted by um, by things that you don't want. You know, you have an absolute 100% choice of the consumption of the media and the topic that you want. It's it's, but it's funny because it's still like you know the an to answer your question, it's who, what, where, how, why, just like the media. It's you know where, like wherever you want to and wherever you are, what is like any topic that interests you whatsoever, how is easy. Everybody now has a phone. Everybody now has um, an iPhone or an Android to be able to connect to these podcasts that for the most part are free. And so the ability to make it super easy, not only for people to listen, but people to create them. Four years ago, three years ago, you would need a couple of thousand dollars and a, you know, nerves of steel to have the the attitude that you were worthy of somebody else's attention to listen to your voice and story that's not the case anymore you can actually literally create a podcast tonight and get it up around the world in moments of like an hour and you could have anywhere between five people listening or 500 or if you hit the right mark you you know a couple of thousand if you hit the right idea and if you're entertaining enough there, the, let's go with the two ends of that, because the, on the one hand, you're right. I, I am always stunned. First of all, there are millions of podcasts out there. I, I mean, it's impossible to keep track, but I am always stunned by the number of people who put immense amounts of work and effort into these things and do it in their basement. And nobody listens like this is a, this is a time consuming passion hobby, but it's not making any money. And there may be four people out there that have ever heard it. And it, again, it always amazes me. People are that committed to the idea that it doesn't matter who's going to listen. I'm going to do this anyway. Yeah. Art is created like that anyway. It's usually created in complete isolation. You put it out in the world and then, you know, the gods and goddesses of whatever art form <laughs> you're trying to appease, um, 
either, you know, it gives you a nod or a nay. I mean, every musician is like that. Every book and author writes without, you know, unless you're Stephen King, without an audience in mind. Um, every screenplay, everything that people create, um, an app, uh, a new computer program. I mean, uh, you know, you and I are talking. I can tell you the 150 shows that I used to do on campus radio when I was first starting that had nobody listening. And I know that for a fact because I was giving away $1,000 in the middle of the night on a Tuesday and nobody called in just as proof. But it got, but it gave me practice. And I think that that's the other thing that people strive for as well is you may stink right now and maybe you don't deserve the audience, but maybe if you keep it up in a year down the road, you'll just get better because the audience doesn't have time for good anymore. We only have time for great because our time is limited and it's the most valuable thing that we have to give. So you kind of have to, you know, go on your own road, but you definitely don't get there without that 10,000 hours worth of practice. Well, and that's why it seems so, uh, you know, I, I go back to probably 25 years ago in animated movies and, and stick with me. You'll understand where I'm going on this one in a second. In animated movies, the voice actors who did the characters were unknown people. They were voice actors who you had never heard their names unless they were Mel Blanc or, you know, one of the really, really famous ones. But everyone else was just a, a nobody. Well, then all of a sudden, everybody, every character, every movie had to have a famous voice or 10. And all the celebrities were being dragged in to do that. Toy Story, perfect example. Well, here we're seeing the same thing podcast kind of started with this anonymous could be a nobody but now you're seeing so many celebrities i mean conan o'brien just ended his tv show to essentially do podcasting and other online stuff exclusively it's become the big shows are now the domain of the famous yeah and i listened to you know uh uh, this podcast called um smart less and it's um, Jason Bateman um, and uh, Will or Not and, and a couple of other people. Um, they just signed a deal with Amazon uh, yesterday that was probably worth seven or eight figures in terms of millions of dollars. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, they all of these all of these celebrities <laughs> they were looking for something to do in the last 18 months. They were like us. They weren't working and they certainly weren't making any money. And so when you put two and two together and they crave fame and they crave awareness of their, of their whole lives, um, it's certainly no surprise of the amount of famous people that have a podcast, but it's not just them though. It's also media outlets as well. The top 10 most downloaded podcasts week after week after week are from NPR, the New York Times, and other big media outlets that already are coming with a brand name. They're coming with a trust factor. And I think the celebrities have that as well. They've got a certain trust factor with the audience that even if you don't know that Jason Bateman might be a funny guy because he really hasn't done anything comedy until like, you know, even Arrested Development was like as straight laced, you know, straight faced as you can get. Um, But there's a level of trust there. Rob Lowe has an amazing podcast too. And for people that have followed him throughout the years, you would never know how many celebrity friends he has. But you're right. It gets to the point where there's like 15 million podcasts and everybody is guesting on each other's podcast. 
Well, and there's so many that it's really hard to find unless you have, as you say, the brand to pump your tire. So New York Times or NPR, whomever, they put it out there. Well, they've already got an audience. You're then going to be familiar. If you're not one of those, boy, you are in a giant sea of floating around hoping that somebody sees you, which is really, really hard to do. But it also suggests, Eric, that, you know, when you're talking about, when we started talking about this as a $2 billion a year enterprise now, the overwhelming vast amount of that money is going to the very, very top of the, the food chain here. It's, it's tons and then almost nothing. And you can divide the world into those two parts. Yeah, exactly. And you can divide the, the world into the, into those two parts in general for the, for, you know, for a lot of the topics you and I certainly talk a lot about the music industry and it's like that too the one tenth of one percent of the top of the pyramid are the ones that are making you know the 40 to 100 million dollars of streaming and the rest of it is just crumbs to everybody else um so it's it's going to be interesting to see if people who have a thousand listeners or 500 listeners, if they can find those small businesses or small companies to help support that through advertising, can they make a living at it? Is this going to be a new economy or is the good majority of the money going to be going to, you know, Joe Rogan and, mm. uh, and those big media companies? But, you know, I, I, every, everybody has to start somewhere. That's the only thing that keeps me going and waking up in the middle of, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the night to start my day is really like all of these indie unknown artists. They've all started in the same place that Taylor Swift did 15 years ago. Is that a problem though, that there's that divide? Because some people would say, well, that's really inequitable. And others would say, no, that's meritocracy. If you draw an audience, you can get paid. And if you are boring or you don't speak to what people want, you don't get paid. I got no problem with that. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that either. I mean, you know, the world owes us nothing, 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 nothing. You know, just because you put out a podcast doesn't mean that you deserve an audience. It means that you can now play in the same field as Joe Rogan and go and try to get his audience of it. But, you know, just because you create something doesn't necessarily mean that you deserve anything. You deserve nothing. You just deserve to have some fun creating it. And if, you know, something amazing happened, it's likely through not your own doing anyway. It's probably just, you know, somebody that uh, just happened to land on it, whose best friend or cousin actually works at a giant, you know, podcast company. Cause those how things work. It's a lot of luck. It's a lot of hard work, but you know, at the end of it all, you know, the big giant pot of money should rightfully go to the ones that are getting the most and widest audience. I don't believe, I'm not going to say that podcasting is a fad because I don't believe it's a fad. I believe it's something that's going to be sticking around, but I'll say this. I think the world of podcasting is about to get a lot more difficult and I'll tell you why. Um, you, m- many people would have watched the, the Netflix series, Making a Murderer, yeah. uh, huge, huge hit. Well, that sort of, I don't know if it spawned or if it came around the same time as a podcast called Serial, which did mm-hmm. exceptionally well. Yeah. Problem was, problem, I don't know, uh, after Serial got a huge audience, there were about 12 billion imitations <laughs> that came out of that same thing. Let's find a murder and yeah. then try and construct a question about whether or not it was really the person who did it. And many of them, it seemed, there was no doubt the person who's in jail was the guilty person, but we're going to try and create some questions around this. But nobody listened to those. And I think that what you do 
It's the goose that killed, that laid the golden egg. Only it's, you're strangling that goose. The po- podcasts give you freedom. Anyone can now build one of these, so you can end up with thousands of podcasts on the same general topic, and people yeah. quickly become bored. So it's, you're going to have to work really hard to keep finding that new, fresh stuff. Yeah, and it's the same formula with the same voice. Do you notice that they're all sounding the same now? Yep. Um, yep. And but that's that's. I'm not going to say it's laziness, but. Um, you know, sometimes these creators have to go with what's working and what's popular. They just don't realize that, you know, there are tens of thousands of other people just thinking just like you. Um, I read somewhere, and, and I wish that I can find it again. I was looking for it's something like 92% of all the podcasts available on Apple have not gone through more than one episode, meaning that people mm. launch it and then they never come back to it. So that's going to be interesting to see if, you know, companies like Apple and the other services start, you know, trashing a lot of these ones that, you know, maybe you can now have a minimum. Maybe you have to have a minimum of a thousand listens in order to be on there. I mean, I don't know if they're going to take it that far, but I think just the sheer amount of clutter is causing confusion with where do I even begin if I like this one? But that's that's music, that's TV, that's entertainment, yeah. that's living in a twelve hundred channel world universe too. I say it's the meritocracy. If you're good, if you hit a uh, the sweet spot and people really like it, uh, and we got to run. But I, I'll tell you, like I, I was poking around the other day and I found a podcast by Brian Baumgartner who played Kevin on The Office. And it's a deep dive into the office and he's interviewed all of his castmates and everything else. Well, I then did a little poking around. It turns out there's about a thousand office podcasts. Yeah. uh, Just about the show. You know what? Nobody listens to them. But you know what? If you find the one, if you do a good job and if you hit the target and if you find the way to make people listen, good for you. Good for you, and I got no beef with you making money off that. And I'm with you, Eric. If you can't complain because we're not owed, nobody's owed anything. Just starting a podcast shouldn't matter, although some would say otherwise. Anyway, huge, huge numbers now um, that we're going to be seeing, and and again, maybe only for the big stars at the top, but uh, still huge money. Eric Alper, listen, we always love having you on the show. Thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk soon. We will. Uh, by the way. This show, Bill Kelly's show, my show that's usually on in the evening, the Scott Radley show, um, all made with love and care by Will Erskine back at the office or Ben Strawn or Alicia. Um, they're all on global podcasts. You can uh, find them on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple, everywhere else. If you ever miss one of these shows, you can always go and find us. We have, we have podcasts too. We're not making $100 million yet. We're not quite in the Joe Rogan category, but you know what? You can help us get there. <laughs> no, go listen. We, if you miss one of the shows, you can find all of our shows on podcast at any of the places you would normally find a podcast. Thought I would mention that just in case you were saying, do you? Yes, we do. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.